so this year we're going through the pastoral epistles. And last fall, we went through 1 Timothy. We have 2 Timothy and Titus left. We're going to do Titus before 2 Timothy because that's the order in which they were written by Paul. I'm not going to do a long intro on the Timothy, uh, Titus because I, they're all, the intros on them is all the same and I've already done that. But I will briefly remind you that most likely, I mean, there's probably the pastorals have as much controversy about who wrote them or not, but that controversy comes mainly from liberal and progressive um, Christians and not within a conservative historically. And the early church fathers, all, not all, but most all of them pointed towards Paul as the author. It's pretty much accepted. He wrote them between his first and second Roman imprisonment, though there is not really mention per se of a second Roman imprisonment, imprisonment except in the end of 2 Timothy. But uh, the idea is that Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, which you see in the end of Acts, Acts 28, probably got out of that imprisonment about 61, 62, right in there. We don't know what he did at that time. You know, he wanted to go to Spain. There's no evidence he went to Spain. Some really think he did. Some say, eh, most likely he, he stayed in the area he had been in before. And what appears to us happened is that he had Timothy and Titus with him and others. He went to uh, do some ministry work, mission work, went to Crete first to help establish the churches, make them stronger. There was already a ministry presence in Crete. He left Titus there, made a quick stop on Ephesus, found so much problem, he left Timothy in Ephesus, went to Macedonia. From Macedonia, he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. Some point along the way, got arrested again, ended back in Rome, and, uh, and wrote what we call 2 Timothy right before his death. And so that's kind of the timeline that we're going to take. When you come to the book of Titus, Titus is an interesting guy. It's really a fascinating book. It's a really short book, three chapters. Um, fairly easy read. Titus is mentioned in several places. He's mentioned in Galatians. Uh, and in Galatians, I believe it was chapter 3, he is mentioned uh, in a reference to, you know, whether Gentile converts should be circumcised, and he wasn't. It's very high probability that since Galatians, as I would hold Galatians, to be written for Acts 15, when they had the whole council at Jerusalem over when the Gentiles had to be uh, circumcised, uh, Titus was probably with Paul in, in um, Jerusalem at that time. And uh, later on, we know from 2 Corinthians that Paul sent Titus on a very important task to Corinth from um, Ephesus. Now, we have two books to Cor Corinthians, but there are four written. 1 Corinthians mentions a book that we don't have. 2 Corinthians mentions a book between 1st and 2nd. It is believed that Titus took that third letter between 1st and 2nd Corinthians to Corinth to deal with the problem. The problem got resolved. He came and brought the good news back to Paul. Then Paul utilized Titus to collect an offering up to uh, the churches to help the ones back in Jerusalem. So he would have been involved in that. Don't know if he spent time with Paul as others did when he ended up in his first Roman imprisonment. By at some point, he was there, and Paul took him. And that's kind of where we leave off. We come um, to the book of Titus. In a few moments, we'll see kind of the purpose of Titus. It's not a complicated thing. It begins in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word bondservant comes from the word doulos, which is to slave or serve, be a slave or a servant. Um, Back then, they really didn't make a distinction between a slave and a servant. In either position, which is basically the same, you had very little freedom. But it, the, the focus of it is not the lack of freedom, but of the fact that he voluntarily has given himself to the service of the Lord. Many slaves, many servants volunteered for that position, oftentimes for financial reasons. And so the idea is he has given himself as a servant of God, 
and then also as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, there, there's a little bit of two things. As a servant of God, he had some authenticity. And as an apostle, he had authority. As I get older and the more I read through the New Testament, those two themes really hit me more and more. The combination of authority, which is not necessarily power, but the right to do something as given to us on behalf of Christ, the responsibility really to do it, and authenticity, the realness of it. I preach about those concepts uh, quite a bit because I'm concerned that in uh, American Christianity, especially in Baptist life, we have focused too much on authority. And because of that, we have put ourselves in a position with the community around us where we come across as cold, hard, and hypocritical. And I think the reason is we lost authenticity. We forgot the part about loving people and serving people and caring about people and simply spent our time pointing out the sins of people. While pointing out people's sins is a good strategy to help them come to faith, it isn't if it lacks love and compassion and all those prerequisites that go with that, the authenticity and the authority. And as I've gotten older in my life, I have really wanted for people who are not followers of Christ to see in me not authority, but to see in me realness, authenticity. He is an apostle. He is sent by Jesus, but he's also a servant. And our, our, our desire to serve should be high. We should want to serve God. We should want to serve one another. And we should want to serve people who aren't followers of Christ. Now, I'm preaching a series on collision, about how you know, we're in collision with the culture around us, and we're dealing with all of that. Nonetheless, we still need to serve those people who are not followers of Jesus. It is hard to serve people who hate your guts. I get that. I've been a Baptist pastor 40 years. 42. He says, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is in accordance to godliness. Why is Paul a servant and apostle? For the faith. Now, most likely this means, the word faith is one of those words, contextually it can mean saving faith. It can mean faith as in um, the doctrines that we believe or faith as in life. I, you know, I live a life of faith. Um, I, have, I adhere to the Christian faith. I have faith in Jesus. Probably it's a combination of a life. He's he's writing to believers. He's writing to Titus, dealing with believers. The life of faith as embodied in people and the teachings that go with it. It's probably that. So he's he's writing concerning, uh, or he's doing these things because of the faith of those who are chosen by God. The word chosen is we get our term election from it. It means to be chosen ahead of time by God. I know for some reason we struggle with the concept of election. I've chosen. Paul writes about it frequently. When I deal with people who are not followers of Christ, I want them to understand that God has given them the opportunity to have faith. They need to take advantage of that faith. But God has given it to them. As a follower of Jesus, I need to remember, I did not choose God. He chose me. I responded to that in faith. If you're not careful, in the old, and I mention this all the time, the old adage that I used to hear, you know, God gives the grace, we give the faith. That is not true. That is a workspace salvation where you generated something that God was obligated to honor. I have faith because God 
gave it to me. I still have to exercise it. I still have to commit myself to him. But without God offering me that opportunity to have faith, I would never have faith. We know of ourselves as being those who are chosen or the elect. It is God who does the electing. So that is a, a strong thing that Paul wants to remind them, that God has pulled them aside. He did not save them against their will. He did not, he did not say, I'm saving you, but I'm, I'm condemning you. You know, we have that mindset. That's not actually taught in Scripture, that he, he created some to be condemned, and that, he, that those who were lost, he brought them into the world so that they would be lost. And, you know, that's, they've rebelled against God. We, we, we don't know the people who had opportunities to give their life to Christ who rejected it. I know of many. I've, I've talked to them, shared Jesus, and they said no. They could have said yes. God gave them the opportunity to have faith. They did. So I don't, I don't, I don't try to figure all that out and how much, you know, I, I just know that's how it works because that's what the New Testament teaches. And if you think it teaches something else, explain it to me. Love to know. Also of the knowledge, the gnosis of the truth, which is according to godliness. So he wants them to have truth to go with the faith. And he wants that truth to be in light of what it means to be godly, to live a godly life. If what you believe does not line up with the godliness that God expects in our life, it's not true. Truth always leads us to a godly life. Notice, in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. The hope is the confident assurance. We have the confidence assurance. All of this is for that beautiful phrase, eternal life. God, I love how Paul says, God cannot lie. Well, we know that. But he promised long ages ago. God, God from the beginning of human endeavors, going back to Adam, Adam when he said, always there in God's working through human history, it's the hope, the assurance that eternal life will be there. The phrase eternal life, I've mentioned it many times, just a beautiful term. Life in so way, life is, it should be eternal, that which goes on. It is, it is the forever life. I say from time to time, everybody spends forever somewhere. It'd be good if you spend it with Jesus. It'd be disastrous if you don't. So there is an eternal aspect of life. That is the hope that God has always promised. You see it working through the pages of the Old Testament. Notice it says in verse 3, but at the proper time revealed his word in the proclamation, in the proper time when he was ready, revealed his word. Revealed that word, which we would know, obviously, you know, to be Christ. He revealed that word, which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. God has entrusted me to preach this word, he says. So what he's saying, Paul is saying, he's laying out this really fancy introduction to, to Titus, which is going to be read to all those who are at, at the church there in Crete. God pulled me aside. He chose me. He set me aside as an apostle to help you with your faith and the knowledge of truth. This is in accordance with the long-established plan of God so that eternal life could be available for you, which he gave to me to preach to you. I love the idea that it is God who set Paul aside to share eternal life. It is always God who sets us aside to share the good news. 
this is not really, this doesn't really mean this, but there's an application I can see from it. Every time you have the opportunity to help people come to faith, you should assume that God is giving you that opportunity. I don't think that way because I'm a pastor. I think every time I have the chance to help someone come to faith, God put that there. And so he's going to give me everything I need. I can't determine their outcome. As, as, as I said not too long ago to someone, and I say this quite often because people talk about, you know, saving and you know, I'm winning someone the Lord or saving someone. I don't win people to Jesus and I don't save them. Jesus does. I love them. And I share Jesus. And then sometimes I add and I try to make them laugh. Because if I fail, the other two don't work. At least the one who I made him laugh. <laughs> so, I don't know how it works. But. Now notice what he says. To Titus, my true son in a common faith. This probably means that Paul led Titus to faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, verse 5 he says, for this reason I left you in Crete. We're going to get some idea of the purpose of Titus being there and the purpose of this letter. This is the reason. That you would two things set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So the first thing, he, he was there not very long. He, he went to churches. He went to the cities. Now, Crete already knew of Jesus because in Acts 2, which is 30-something years before this, people from Crete came to faith. But it, they probably never really had organized churches. So Paul went to people. We don't know much about it. Probably people, some who had faith. He helped them establish churches in all the different cities. Crete's not a big island. Um, I, mean, it's, it's, I think it's the biggest in that part of the Mediterranean. Uh, but it had multiple communities. So he established some churches. But he had to leave quickly. And he left Titus there. And he probably told Titus what he wanted to do. And now he's writing it so there's no question from anyone there. Titus, set things in order. Now that can be a variety of things. Later on, we're going to see there's false teaching. The false teaching there is not near as severe as in Ephesus, but there were people who were probably from Jerusalem who were trying to impose some type of Jewish regulation upon that church. He deals with that, but he wanted to get things straight. He wanted organization. Paul was never about chaos. The Christian faith is not about chaos. So he said, I want you to set things in order, and then I want you to appoint elders. In 1 Timothy, we saw a job description in essence. We saw some explanation of what the overseer, the episkopos, the bishop, was to do in deacons. Here we're going to see a similar list about the presbyteros, the presbytery. We get our term presbyterians from that. And uh, just like the episkopos, we get our term Episcopalians from that. Um, and uh, from the term deacons, we get nothing of value. From that. <sighs> yeah, well, that's funny, I think. See, I made you laugh. So we, we should probably understand that. See, this is what we do as Baptists, and this is a huge mistake. We separate the elder from the overseer the presbyter, the presbyteros, and the episcopos. We do that because as Baptists, we don't want Presbyterian methodology. We don't want elders. And I shared with you, I think, back in Timothy. More and more, we see new Baptist church planners having elders. That is, especially in the western part, like out here. 
Text isn't out here. We see more more. That is becoming the norm. Because the realization is set in, even among the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, that is a biblical process. I don't know that the other denominations who have elders do it always correctly. That's not the issue. There is a correct way to do it. And we need to find that correct way. It would appear, though, the, the, all the elders, the word elders means the older, once you're a little older. That's to be just age, but in faith. And so that would preclude young believers, especially, that the pastor, the episcopus, the, me, would be one of the elders and probably would be understood as the leader of the elders. Now, it's quite possible that every community had a church and would have an elder. That would be the pastor. It's also highly probable, I'm going to go through this list in just a second, that there would be other elders too. Now, what I want you to notice, which is critical when all this is said and done, is that it's evident that the elder needs not only to have high character, but be able to teach so that in probability, the mistake we make in American Christianity of all levels, we look at elders as being business people who can run the church, hogwash. It's not right. They are spiritual men, or I guess women, but I'm not my problem. It's are spiritual people who have the capability not only to have the highest reputation, but to teach the Christian faith. In my lifetime, I have, not, I have never had elders that I've had to worry about. <laughs> I had deacons that I've had to worry about and other staff members that I've had to worry about in a WMU, which is not in the Bible anywhere. I don't know where we got that from. Who I've had to worry about. And the thing that always strikes me is the people who've caused the most trouble are the people who have the worst reputations and the least ability and skill set to teach and to help other people. Notice what he says about the elder. And I, and I was, with all this, I'm not going to break it down and overdo it. It's, a, you can, it's comprehensive. Any man must be above reproach and that particularly, the husband of one wife, having children who believe not accused of indecent behavior, rebellion. Above reproach, I have the great reputation inside the church and out. In this particular case, it's in relationship to his family life. The husband of one wife, the, word, the term is one woman man, did a lot of this in Timothy. The question, I guess, comes down, does, <laughs> so I, I to, to explain this, here's what I ask. This is what we always get on, divorce and all that stuff. Does a man who is divorced, does that automatically eliminate him from being an elder, a pastor, a deacon? And my answer would be, according to Scripture, it doesn't appear to be. We make it that way sometimes, but it doesn't appear to be. It's the reason for that. Now, the phrase one woman man really means this, a person whose attention is devoted to one woman and only one woman. Not one at a time. I mean, I get that, but one woman. Um... Now, that doesn't mean that a person can't be a single or widowed and remarried, or even, I don't think it means they can't be divorced or remarried, depending on the circumstances of the divorce. The critical thing is the above reproach. Was a person married and then became a Christian after they were married, and the wife left him before or after because of that? I think that's an extenuating circumstance. You understand, did the wife have an affair and leave? Now, if the man had an affair, um, then I would say you're no longer above reproach. Part of the thing that's crazy is I know people who, for some reason, who I, I told you this before in Bridgeport, I had two deacons who 
not too long before I got there, had affairs, and people knew about it, and they stayed at Deacon. I'm like, what? When I, I didn't, it was later when I found out. It was too late. I mean, it's years. What in the world's wrong with you people? I don't care. One of them was a prominent member of the church and the community. Well, you know, okay, boot them anyways out of Deacon. They can stay and keep giving money. I'll take it. But it's the mindset we have is so messed up. That's, and, and, I want to say, you know what? I'm going to tell that church, you know why you ended up calling me to come fix your problem? Because you didn't fix it before I got here. You know, that was absolutely true. It was just a mess. And you want in family life to be devoted to a, your spouse. You want the children to be raised in the faith. Now, we have to be careful because it says having children who believe when your children leave and go out on their own, there's no control over that. Believe would be, yes, come to faith. But I think what it means is more something like this. Be sure they're raised up to believe. Now, I have seen plenty of leadership position people whose kids were horrible. Then they probably shouldn't be in leadership. So, um, you know, I got some young staff members with kids. Their kids are pretty decent. Evidently, one of them today uh, broke that rule. I'm just reading this thinking about one of your kids. My goodness, Joe, are you disqualified? No. Uh, you would have been, brother, a long time ago. What, what it means is they can't be living in rebellion against the authority and the teaching of their parents in the faith. Kids get in trouble, right? I got in trouble a lot when I was a kid. Uh, but my mother overlooked it because I was her favorite. It just means, look at how their home goes. It says the overseer in verse 7, uh, oh, not be accused of indecent behavior or rebellion. That's about the kids. So um, the overseer must be beyond reproach. Again, towards, is God's steward. That means head of the house, steward of, of the managing of the house. He's not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not overindulging in wine. The way to be sure that doesn't happen is don't drink at all. Uh, loving what is good, self-controlled, Righteous, holy, discipline. So there's a list of characteristics. I went through a lot of that uh, early on. Those are really not hard to, to understand. I, I would say this, though, about some of that. You want someone who has discipline in their life. We all get angry from time to time, but don't be quick-tempered. Don't be, don't be the bullying type. Have you ever met someone who had to get their way all the time? I met that when I, when I came here, um, you at the time had one or two that tried to bully their way into getting what they wanted. Uh, it's always interesting when I see that happen. But, um, you know, that, that occurs a lot. You don't want someone who's greedy. The idea of being hospitable, we, we misunderstand that to think they can host a potluck. Hospitable means you act kindly towards people especially those who are in need of something. For me to be hospitable is not me opening up my home to you because I'm not going to do that. No, there's no situation I can think of that I would do that. I was trying to think maybe, maybe it's an exception. There's just not. But what it means is that in the treating of people, especially lost people, there is that sense of welcome and encouragement. You want people. You want you want your overseer, your elders, your, all of you needs to be that way. Now, I love verse 9. Holding firmly, notice the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. What that means is this. They need to understand the truth, especially in the New Testament, 
today. They didn't have the New Testament yet. Paul was writing it. Uh, no, they didn't have it in this completed form. And they need to be able to teach truth. So he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. Now, this is where it really falls into me. This is why the pastor is considered an elder. Because part of my responsibility is to understand the truth, orthodoxy, to teach it, to exhort and encourage you and refute that which is wrong. But every elder should be able to do that. And let me go on and say this too. Any person serving in a church in a position that puts them out in front dealing with critical things and people should be able to do that. You should. You should. That's why you don't want new Christians. They don't have this ability. Or necessarily young Christians. I, I say this quite often. I want people who have what I call skin on the wall. And I'm, and I want people who've been through, I want people who have scars, you know, in their life. I, you know, it's kind of good as a pat that I look back and, and my daughter had a rebellious stage in life because I can relate and help people because of that. You know, it, it's good that, th- you know, things happened in my life. It wasn't always good. I've proven myself. I've demonstrated that I can remain faithful and I'm able to help people who struggle with those things. I'm able to have wisdom and impart wisdom into the life of people. And give them godly, sound advice, not based on my opinion, but on what Scripture says. I'm able to help when people have weird ideas about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I'm able to cut through that and put it aside, show them why they're wrong, and help people understand. When people come to me having been influenced by popular cultural trends in Christianity, I have the ability to help them work through that. It's what an elder is supposed to do. It's what all of us are supposed to do. These qualifications should apply to every one of us in our Christian journey. You should read that and say, that applies to me somehow, some ways, in some capacity. Now, obviously, perfectly, it's not all going to fit. I get it. But what it also reminds us is this. I can't change my past. I can only have some sense of control over what lies ahead. And if I mess this up in the past, I can't fix that. But from this day forward, I can. And from this day forward, I need to live this way. You need to live this way. You need to live as if you were and are a bond servant of Jesus. And an apostle, little a, of Jesus Christ. And live your life like this. And with that in mind, I'm going to let you out about a minute early. Because that's what an elder above reproach would do.